listening to Ohio V, The World, an Ohio history podcast. The only podcast dedicated exclusively to the history of the Buckeye State. Stream and donate to the show at OhioVTheWorldPodcast.com. Now, here's your host, Alex Hasty. Welcome, everybody, to Episode 3 of Season 4 of Ohio v. The World. In today's episode, Ohio versus Opioids. We're going to be speaking with Professors Daniel Skinner and Berkeley France from Ohio University in their book, Not Far From Me, a collection of stories and viewpoints uh, about the opioid crisis. And today we'll be talking about the history of the opioid crisis uh, and how we got here and, and where we're going now. You know, over 400,000 people are said to have lost their lives in America during the opioid crisis since the late 1990s. It's almost the identical number of people that were killed in World War II, Americans that died during that great world war. It's an incredible number. And Ohio is the epicenter of overdoses, of deaths, and also, though, of treatment and innovation. Uh, and so we'll look at the history of that and see what we can learn from it and see from Berkeley and from Daniel get their expertise about the opioid crisis. And I remember when this started hearing about the opioid crisis, gosh, 10 years ago, maybe even longer. Um, and it was something that maybe didn't affect me uh, or my friends or, or my family. But as time went on, as an, an attorney, I do some work in criminal defense, um, whether it was relatives or friends of friends, it did start happening. I saw people, I knew people who have lost their lives, people whose lives have been altered for the worse, families. It is the health crisis of our generation. You know, it might have been HIV AIDS for Generation X or the crack uh, epidemic in the, in the mid-80s in the inner cities, but this is our epidemic. So we're going to look at what's working. Our guests, and they've written this great book, Not Far From Me, and I encourage all of you to, to buy. It just came out this summer from the Ohio State University Press. Again, Daniel Skinner and Berkeley Franz are here to join us. Our beer for the episode, we're going to spend a lot of time today in Dayton. They were victims last month of this terrible mass shooting uh, in the Oregon District, historic district, a bar and restaurant area just outside downtown. And we're going to Toxic Brew Company on, on 5th Street, just a couple doors down from where the shooting took place. Uh, our thoughts and, and, and really our hopes for common sense gun legislation go out to those folks in Dayton. And that terrible, terrible incident there. But we're a toxic brew company and, and drinking their beer today, ISO Heaven, In Search of Heaven. It's kind of a West Coast American IPA, 7.2%, good stuff. And like I said, just down the street, not even, just a couple of doors down from where that shooter was killed and where so many of those victims were murdered. So like I said, we're rooting for Dayton, and that is one city that has been absolutely ravaged by the opioid crisis as will pinpoint today you can go see them at toxicbrewcompany.com again on fifth street in the oregon district in dayton uh, a place we should all be going to to support here as, as ohio has been hit by another mass shooting uh, and again toxic brew company they actually dayton's first brewery in 52 years they claim um and they've got great beer and really nice people over there so again i ask you to go check that out today we're going to go and figure out how did we get here 
We'll look at the history of the opioid crisis. We'll look at people like the, the folks at Purdue Pharma who pushed OxyContin onto the Midwest and Appalachia and all over the country, claiming that it wasn't addictive, a miracle drug, a miracle opioid. We'll look at the influx of black tar heroin from Mexico that came flooding into really Columbus being one of the first places it went to, then moving out to places like Dayton, Chillicothe, Portsmouth, Zanesville, Akron, and the influx of fentanyl in recent years, which has really spiked the number of OD deaths across the state and across the country. This is something that's affected so many of us here in this state. Ohio, like like we'll note, has been hit no, you know, as hard as anybody, uh, if not harder, by the opioid crisis. And sometimes, you know, when we do these episodes, we say it's Ohio versus something. Ohio doesn't always win. And we've certainly lost this round. Um, but perhaps with some of the things that our guests will outline in, in innovative ways, towards recovery, we can help some Ohioans uh, and those families uh, get back to normal and make sure that this is not the new normal here in the Buckeye State. It's good to have everybody back, and it's Episode 3, Ohio vs. Opioids. few days, a few nights in the hospital after the birth of my son uh, a couple weeks ago, William Henry, William Henry Hasty, and a lot of times you'd see the nurse come in and ask about my wife's pain. And to somebody who hasn't been in a lot of hospitals, but I've seen that before. How would you rate your pain being one of the first questions? I don't think it used to be that way. You know, this idea that pain is the fifth vital sign is something that's happened in the last 20, 30 years. Um, and the management of pain, which became a major issue in healthcare, uh, it leads to the advent of this miracle painkiller. And we'll start our story with the, the advent of OxyContin, an opioid pill uh, that was pushed by Purdue Pharma, a giant pharmaceutical company. And they start pushing this pill, which is an opioid, um, but they start pushing it as, as less, uh, less addictive. We've known about opioids and opium for, gosh, you know, four or 5,000 years, people have been using it to dull pain. Um, but even, you know, you look at the, the opium wars and things even in the last 100 years, 200 years in, in North America and in Asia, even those, uh, you know, less refined uh, medical experts back in those days, they knew the addictive threat and the addictive nature of opioids. But suddenly there's this new pill. Uh, we talk with our guest, Berkeley Franz, um, the author and, and, again, professor at Ohio University, um, just about pain being the fifth vital sign and how that helps open the door to this flood of pills. When I've talked to, you know, healthcare professionals and prescribers in particular that were practicing during that time in the 1980s, there was a really clear moment where the philosophy of prescribing changed, right? There was this belief that prescribing was the ethical thing to do, that controlling patients' pain was, you know, imperative. And the fifth vital sign came about at this time where people are, you know, every time you enter a medical uh, facility, you're asked how your pain is and providers and prescribers are rated on how well they manage it. And so I think there's this whole new focus on managing pain effectively and the belief that these medications are very safe for the population. And, and I have to say, I mean, we, we work with medical students. A lot of our colleagues are clinicians and um, you know, aside from any bad intent that we can ascribe to Purdue Pharma, um, no doctor 
wants a, to, a patient to leave their office in pain. So we also try to be really empathetic about the experience of being a clinician, even while these other questions are out there about were, were they really looking at this carefully or not, right? But yeah, as Berkeley mentioned, I mean, the, the, the culture was changing at the time too. Summer days in the Midwest where the life of the community revolved around outdoor pools. For six generations, nowhere was that truer than in Portsmouth, Ohio, where one pool so embodied the town's glory days that it still lives on on Facebook. It wasn't just swimming, there were games, dances, food, and first kisses. It was called Dreamland. This is all that remains of Dreamland today. A parking lot in a strip mall. Its demise foreshadowed a deeper crisis in the city, one of drug abuse beyond anything we've seen. Painkiller medication flooded Portsmouth after unscrupulous doctors set up shop beginning in the 90s selling prescriptions and everyone around was drowning in pills. Portsmouth, Ohio, down on the southern border, uh, directly south from Columbus on the Ohio River, is one of the towns we'll look at today. And it's a subject, a town that gets a lot of focus in the famous Sam Kionis book from, from earlier this decade called Dreamland. Like, like you heard in the clip, the name of that pool that everyone used to go to for decades and decades uh, when Portsmouth was a much more prosperous city, a river town. You know, Kionis wrote this book, um, which I suggest that everybody read. It is a fascinating book, and it's a book about Ohio history, um, as much as it is about the you know Purdue Pharma and these doctors and these pill mills, especially so many pill mills in Portsmouth serving um, people who became addicted in Kentucky and West Virginia uh, in central and southern Ohio. Um, but his book, Dreamland, really does talk about the invasion from the Mexican cartels and the black tar heroin from, from you know, Jalisco, from Nayarit um, in Mexico. Uh, Keone's from, from California. Just, he writes a great book, and, and you really need to look at it. But he also outlines this bogus study that Purdue Pharma would rely on, this uh, from Herschel's Jick. It's, it's in like a 1980, like it's, he says it's 101 words. It's a letter. It's nothing more than that. It's just a, a letter to the New England Journal of Medicine. It's, you know, of a study that was going on. But it's used and it's twisted to create Oxycontin as this miracle drug. You can't talk about opioids uh, without at least acknowledging the importance of Sam Canonis's book, which yeah, really, you know, but it's also established a lot of narratives that are, are very common out there and that some of the aspects of our book sort of offer slightly different takes on. But it's such an important book and such a well-written book. But, you know, th that history, I mean, it's really amazing. Even you, you just use the word of a study, right? And one of the funny parts about this is we're talking about a 1980, really a letter in the New England Journal of Medicine. That's, yeah, like a letter to the editor, right? Yeah. Essentially, right, by, by Jane Porter and Herschel Jick. And and it, it was a, a small study limited to um, a very controlled environment, namely hospitals. So you're talking about patients who are being administered opioids within a controlled hospital situation with now, pain issues right yeah but but you know um they weren't um they weren't being prescribed for home there was no home aspect to that 
And all of a sudden, this, next thing you know, this small study get, gets replicated on PowerPoint presentations and taught in medical schools. And, you know, and it, Purdue Pharma picks up and runs with it as well. And it, by that point, the study had lost all context. Now it was just opioids aren't really addictive. And, you know, the authors themselves were like, whoa, 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 hold on a second. That's absolutely not what we were saying. But it was kind of, you know, the, the bull was out of the gates. These pills start flooding not just the Midwest, but especially in in Ohio. These pharmaceutical reps going and pushing, you know, aggressively oxycontin, oxycontin. Use it with your your you know your pain patients. You know, we play for you right here a a commercial, um, really that they used in some of their promotional materials in the '90s uh, from doctors saying just that that this was the ticket. There's no question that our best, strongest pain medicines are the opioids, but these are the same drugs that have a reputation for causing addiction and other terrible things. Now, in fact, the rate of addiction amongst pain patients who are treated by doctors is much less than 1%. They don't wear out, they go on working, they do not have serious medical side effects. And so these drugs, which I repeat, are our best, strongest pain medications should be used much more than they are for patients in pain. Our guests today, um, Berkeley Franz and Daniel Skinner, uh, professors from Ohio, uh, Ohio University down in Athens, they've been traveling all over the state. Uh, you can hear Daniel is the host of Prognosis Ohio, a great podcast you can hear on WCBE, uh, the local NPR station 90.5 FM here in Columbus, um, and or just you know, on any of your streaming platforms for, for podcasts. Again, Prognosis Ohio is, is Daniel's show. But they've been touring all summer and into this fall uh, promoting this book and talking to communities that have been hit by the opioid crisis and sharing stories from every viewpoint, which really is something that their book does that other books about this crisis haven't done. But we asked Berkeley, you know, why was it Appalachia? Why was Appalachia so susceptible to falling prey to the opioid crisis? I think that's a great question. And I think we're still only at the beginning of really understanding this whole story. I think Dreamland helped a, you know, a large amount, especially tracking the connection between heroin and overdose deaths that you know, people started on prescription opioids and transitioned to other, um, other types of opioids. But I think there's a longer history to why Ohio in particular. So Ohio is number two in the country in overdose deaths. It's second to West Virginia. Um, and I think there's a long history there in terms of why certain parts of Ohio in particular, especially rural Ohio and southern Ohio, which is part of the Appalachian region. Um, and I think there's a history of um, extractive industries such as mining and fracking and things like that that are highly related to opioid overdose and opioid use if you look at the national data. Uh, but you also have widespread economic inequality and lack of or you know, kind of loss of wages, polarization of wages and of jobs and things like that that I think have really kind of driven what we call diseases of despair. So drug overdose, suicide and things like that. And so I think that's why we see it concentrated in these regions and not other rural regions in the country, like for example, the Great Plains or the South aren't, haven't been hit quite as hard as Ohio and this larger region has been. heroin was coming from I'm working in the you know down at court I do like I said some criminal defense work in Franklin County and surrounding counties here in Ohio around Columbus 
and I'm having upper middle class kids come into my office from my own hometown. They're telling me that, you know, yeah, they've been to rehab and they're trying to stay clean. And I'm like, stay clean from what? And they're saying from heroin. You know, they dropped out of college. Um, and some of those kids aren't, aren't with us anymore. They've passed away. Um, but I was stunned. You know, these Mexican groups, these cartels, they moved to the Midwest. Um, and especially the ones outlined in Sam Conus' book, you know, the boys, the Jalisco boys, as he calls them. Uh, from Nayarit, they were almost like pizza delivery. You'd call them and an operator would answer. Um, they would drive around in, in these vans and um, just, you know, incredible customer service. Uh, for lack of a better term, cheap prices. They're bringing in all this black tar heroin from Mexico. Um, you know, they came from, from all from this kind of same town, Jalisco, in the Mexican state of Nayarit, kind of on the west uh, west coast of Mexico. And they change the game. They go to these mid-sized cities, places like Louisville, Lexington, Dayton, Columbus, Indianapolis, bringing this potent heroin uh, into these areas where the, the pill mills have been, you know, begun to be legislated out. You can't get as many pills as you used to if you can get them at all. And in moves Mexican black tar heroin. Well, the way the story typically gets narrated is, you know, a couple phases. And the, it really starts with massive overprescribing and um, and that whole story with Purdue Pharma that we touched on before. Um, you know, and then the state starts to, and I'm talking about Ohio in this context, but states around the country start to really get keen to this and start to develop policy mechanisms to, you know, lessen the flow of drugs, make them harder to get. Um, by that point, you have a real addicted, you know, base in a society. And Canonis tells the story again here, too, of just, you know, the opportunism that comes when you have people who are already in that position where their source has been turned off. I mean, that's an amazing economic opportunity if you're in that business. Right. So they were really targeted and, you know, ironically, states that uh, engaged in these kinds of policy mechanisms also have to deal with the fact that a heroin and black tar heroin uh, crisis kind of came out of it, whatever you want to, however you want to position that. The opioid crisis is largely a white crisis. The numbers just back that up. We ask our guests about, about the history and why, why that is. Um, but Berkeley and Dan, they say it's, there's racism in prescriptions. I mean, the number of the, you know, the rate of prescriptions of pain pills to, to white patients, uh, you're more likely to get a pain prescription if you're a white patient. Um, and even the Mexican drug dealers themselves, they don't like dealing with African-Americans because they think that they're more prone to violence. They're more likely to be armed. Uh, it seems like working um, and selling to middle-class uh, white Americans. You know, Dave Chappelle's got this this new... A comedy special on Netflix, which I, I recommend you watch. You will be very offended. Um, but he says now now white people, or now he knows what white people felt like in the 80s watching the crack epi epidemic. I won't tell you the rest of the joke, but he's right. You know, this is a largely white uh, crisis. And of course, the role of racism that now the government suddenly is beginning to change their view on on drugs and becoming more empathetic and you know, donating government and federal, local community resources and bringing them to bear in a big way, in ways we never saw in the 80s, whether it was the AIDS crisis, 
in the gay community or the crack cocaine epidemic in the largely African-American inner cities. We talked to our guests about the whiteness of this crisis. There's so much variation in terms of the opioid epidemic. We tend to talk about it in really broad strokes, which I don't think is necessarily the correct way to do it. But for example, we see huge variation in urban and rural areas, even in Ohio. So I think that's important to consider that in urban areas in Ohio, heroin's much more common, or in rural areas, prescription opioids are much more common in terms of overdose deaths. Um, fentanyl is the kind of the real driver in all of these increases in both areas recently. But both, as Dan mentioned, are really products of opportunism. So black tar heroin was marketed first to the urban areas of Ohio, and prescription drugs were marketed very heavily more in rural areas. So I think it's important to think that there is, this drug epidemic is a part of multiple waves in terms of understanding the history of how um, different communities have been affected. I'll also say, I mean, this is part of the history too, is just the targeting of mid-sized cities. And Ohio has uh, a, a bunch of those. Right. Yeah. So, so cities like Dayton and you know the, the, the Mexican groups that were trafficking um, clearly wanted to stay out of some of the big cities that had real criminal justice mobilizations where the police were really on, on point with these things. And had other established organized Absolutely. crime as well, right? Right. Yeah. right. Yeah. They didn't want to deal with that. And they were all also quite racist, right? They would they would try to they were looking for racially segregated communities, places where they could target, you know, populations because they, they perceived uh, you know African Americans, for example, as you know, being armed, they were subject to all of the stigma and all the racial bias that we deal with in the country. So they steered towards some of these communities. And that, that explains some of the whiteness in that's wrapped up in the story. And so they the targeted, you're saying they targeted white communities more so than African-American or fellow Latino communities. Yeah. And that and that's what uh, Canonis argues and other people seem to agree with it. And I would say that the drug companies also targeted white communities. I mean, that's part of the study that Dan mentioned is that this idea of the addictiveness of Oxycontin and other opioids was really tied up in this belief that it was only addictive for certain populations, particularly non-white populations or people with other, um, with a background in addiction. So it really kind of pushed a lot more drugs towards to, toward white people. Um, and it explains some of the continued disparities we have in prescribing in the United States. You're more likely to get pain medicine if you're white um, for a variety of conditions. As these Oxycontins begin to dry up um, and you know, government and police have moved in and put some of these you know, these shady doctors out of, out of work and, and the pill mills and people running pills up from Florida. I remember saw some cases like that come across uh, my office, you know, earlier in the decade. You know, they dry up and, and basically the heroin use skyrockets. And one of the reasons is just how cheap it is. I, I was startled when I asked Dan, you know, just how much is it for a heroin fix? So a tenth of a gram is like, you know, I mean, there's different numbers out there. And everybody who looks at this says you have, you, you know, you have to look regionally, just like you look at any kind of like price index right. around the country. But about $15 for a tenth. Oh, wow. But but if you're, you know, in the throes of addiction, you can be doing up to a gram a day, which is going to be about $200. Right. Maybe even more. And of course, one of the aspects of, of this kind of addiction is that you need more and more to maintain the level of, um, you know, the sensation. So... You know, that's a real recipe for all sorts of other bad stuff that come out of it. In 2019, the number of deaths by accidental overdose surpassed those nationwide of those killed in traffic accidents. And that's something that happened, my gosh, like a decade or more ago here in, in Ohio. But, you know, there's basically now heart disease, cancer, and OD in the state of Ohio, and it's becoming that way nationally as well. We talked to our guests just about the number of deaths from the opioid crisis. 
the wow. that happened just recently. So, it, you know, across the country, the third leading cause of death besides heart disease and cancer is, is injury, uh, which includes accidental poisonings or drug overdoses. Um, but for people aged one to 44, injuries are now the number one leading cause of death. And it's because of, of opioid-related overdoses. Um, yeah, so it's an incredible, incredible shift. And so you're more likely in Ohio and everywhere else now to to die. You have higher odds of dying um, as a result of an opioid overdose than you would in a car accident, which is, you know, for a long time been the highest um, type of injury. How many people are dying by OD every year in Ohio? A little over 4,000. And about two-thirds of those are opioid-related overdoses, Not yeah, as compared to other drugs. And that's about almost three times the national average in terms of the overdose rate. So it's considerably higher here. With your with your Ohio v the world framework, I just want to say one of the things you, we didn't call Ohio the overdose capital of the world. We were actually quoting a lot of the news sources, mm -hmm. so the Dayton Daily News, but national news sources were doing that to Ohio too, and dealing with the stigma of like, oh, you know, Ohio used to be known for you know the birthplace of the AFL, or we used to be known you know the first in flight or whatever the license plate says. Right. I, um, I know there's a controversy there. Uh, you know, I mean, like what we're known for in, in nationally, um, the, the headlines were, were doing this, but also different cities. So is it Dayton? Is it Portsmouth? Like we saw this kind of like almost as jockeying for the worst. Right. And now we're looking at hopefully out of this, uh, these places like Dayton, places like Portsmouth want to be at the forefront. So the real question is, which one of these mid-sized cities that got hit really hard is actually going to be at the forefront of addressing the issue? An innovator when it comes to recovery. Yeah, I think that's a really important point that we want to be careful. You know, we don't want to just add to the existing narrative that Ohio is, you know, the, the worst place in the country to be in terms of, you know, dr drug abuse or recovery um, or Appalachia. But I think that we want to talk more about the assets here in this region and all of the really positive change that we're seeing as a result of this. And I think our book really, we try to focus on those stories. Um, of course, there's a lot of you know trauma in the book as well, but we want to talk about also about how communities are really coming together around this issue. That epicenter is in Ohio. They blame a drug so powerful you could die just touching it. In what local officials say is the overdose capital of America, Montgomery County Sheriff Phil Plummer finds an unprecedented crisis on his hands. Brought on by the synthetic opioid fentanyl, up to thousands of times stronger than heroin. It's used legally in chronic pain management, but now manufactured, trafficked, and sold illegally as a street drug. We're on a pace to have 800 people die this year due to overdose in our county. Per capita, we're number one in the nation in overdose deaths. Our job markets tank, so people, you know, I think they're depressed, they're self-medicating. Fentanyl's made in China and smuggled into the U.S. by Mexican cartels, who pass it to local gangs to sell. The local coroner calls the death toll in Ohio a mass casualty event and hopes for assistance from the federal government. Now, one of the reasons this death toll skyrocketed is the introduction of fentanyl, this synthetic opioid, um, to heroin and other drugs. It's cheap, uh, and it's killing Ohioans at an alarming rate. It's so, it's so strong. If you touch it, um, you could die. Our guest, Berkeley Franz, makes this point that there's more health crisis than just overdose and deaths and you know, even just the users. You know, my, uh, Miss Ohio v. The World works at the neonatal ICU um, at a hospital here in Columbus that, that does incredible work, so much so that they bring some of the worst babies and, and opioid babies 
uh, from all over Appalachia come to Columbus to her hospital. Um, but she's seen it, and she's been telling me about it for years. We asked Berkeley about just all of these cumulative health effects of the opioid crisis. I mean, I think there's a lot of factors at play here. I think, like we already talked about, Ohio was a, was vulnerable in many ways because of the history, you know, changing change of industry in the the state, and also kind of widening economic inequality left a lot of communities just very vulnerable to these types of um, diseases. But of course, you also have you know the influx of new types of opioids that are much more dangerous, and so you'll see these rises are connected very closely to fentanyl. Um, so these other synthetic opioids that are largely you know manufactured. Um, overseas and that are being brought into the United States are just incredibly deadly. They're very difficult to control the amount of that you're taking. It's not clear to a lot of people who are, are using these drugs how much they're taking and an accidental overdose is incredibly common. And I would just also like to mention too that, you know, we talk so much about overdose and how it's increased so astronomically, but there are also a whole number, you know, a whole kind of range of complications of opioid abuse that have also increased by that amount. In particular, new um, incidents of HIV, hepatitis C virus, um, neonatal abstinence syndrome, which has r- risen by 750% in Ohio, um, and other really serious health conditions like infective endocarditis that is a result of injection drug use. So we're seeing an epidemic, not just of overdose, but of a lot of public health complications. Another risk hidden in our economy. It includes an estimated half a million workers who've given up looking for jobs. We have an unusually large number of people in their prime working years who are not in the labor force. The United States has a lower labor force participation rate than almost every other advanced country. That is not our self-image as a country. Where did these people go who are no longer looking for work? So for whatever reason, and the opioid crisis is, is related, to, I think, to those other factors. The opioid crisis. The opioid crisis um, is millions of people. They tend to be young males. It's a very significant problem, and it's, it's part of, of, a, of a larger picture. I mean, you seem to be talking about part of this generation being lost. That is the issue. Uh, when you have people who are, are not taking part in the economic life of the country in a meaningful way, who don't have the skills and aptitudes to play a role, or who are not doing so because, of, because they're addicted to drugs uh, or in jail, um, then in a sense they are being left behind. It's from the Federal Reserve Chairman, you know, the, the head of her monetary system, talking about he notices in the economy, a noticeable impact, a lost generation of Americans from this crisis. We asked uh, Dan and Berkeley just about the opioid crisis and whether it's the worst drug crisis in our nation's history. Yeah, it is. It is in terms of number of overdoses, it absolutely is the worst drug epidemic. If you look since the 1990s, uh, the rates of overdose have been going up every year. And so you can see this kind of steady progression. And with opioid abuse, they've they've grown much uh, at a much higher rate. So in the last 10 to 20 years, we've seen continued increases. In fact, this last year, 2018, is the first year since 1990 when it actually went down. It's still a moderate amount that it went down compared to, you know, pre-1990 But any levels. decline in the life expectancy is really, really noticeable when you're talking about a nation like the United States. Yeah. Productivity. 500 billion. That's the, what the Center for Economic Advisors per estimated. Per year, right? Per year, though, in terms of economic. I think, yeah. yeah. 500 billion 500 is what they're billion, saying now? Yeah. So that's gotten quite, that's gotten revised quite a bit from <laughs> yeah. the reports uh, from like 2013-14. It's too big of an issue for, for one history podcast, but what Dan mentions, you know, and I had to include, he calls the opioid crisis 
just a symptom of a larger problem with, with our modern society. I like to leave these little nuggets sometimes for you to think about, and maybe I don't explain everything. Sometimes I don't know the answer. Um, but is this crisis just a symptom? You know, how would you describe what is the actual problem in, in modern life that's led to this being just a symptom for a segment of our population? What does it say about us? Ohio has a lot of communities, you know, that have just been devastated. We have newspapers shutting down, but we also have factories shutting down. We have promises of we're going to bring back the coal industry. You know, so we, you know, lots of different kinds of issues that just kind of culminate at this issue. And I think this issue sometimes is more of a, we need to think of it as more of a symptom than necessarily the entire story that we need to look at. Again, our guests in their book, Not Far From Me, uh, you can go to notfarfrommeme.org. Obviously, you can get it on uh, Amazon or any of those types of places, but you can go to notfarfrommeme.org for even more discussion. But it's really 53 uh, chapters, 53 accounts from Ohioans who are at the center of this epidemic. And they share their personal stories, their art, their poetry, you know, whether it's photos, interviews. Um, and it, you know, their idea for this book is really the next step of let's take in everyone's perspective. Um, on this crisis and maybe that will help us get to some solutions on how things can can move forward but the forward of the book is done by former Ohio governor Ted Strickland Um, and he does an excellent job laying out a lot of the history that we talk about here today but also his own personal um, his own personal effects we'll talk more about the book with our guests later Um, but he discusses you know breaking down while being asked to, to speak at his nephew's funeral his nephew died uh, from an opioid overdose. You know, it's a crisis that's affected everyone in Ohio. Uh, personally, you know, if it hasn't, you need to really consider yourself lucky. Uh, but we asked Dan just briefly about, you know, how did he get the governor to contribute to the book, to write this forward? I'm a New Yorker originally. It's funny. One of the things I love about Ohio is that our elected officials, past or present, are a little bit more accessible Absolutely, than yeah. in, in some other places. So uh, through, I believe it's through Mayor Whaley in Dayton, who um, reached out to the governor, uh, to Governor Strickland, and he was enthusiastic about it. I was a little shocked. I mean, again, to my New York contrast, I I just got an email from him. He said, call me up on my cell phone. And I was like, okay. And then we had lunch here in Grandview, actually, at Maza, uh, Berkeley, uh, Governor Strickland and I. Went to a place outside of Columbus, a place called Harrison Farm. Our friend Catherine invited, she's a listener. Uh, and every first Thursday they have people meet up. It's a potluck. They have a speaker, uh, and we had a really great time out there. And, and I spoke with them just kind of previewing season four and talking about the show and what we do and, and doing a, a pretty long and fun Q&A with them. Um, but after it, a, a guy walked up to me, and he's a Columbus police officer. I told him we were doing an episode on the opioid crisis, um, and he started talking to me and said, look, man, there." This is a real problem. He's a day shifter. Um, But there's multiple a shift. You know, officers are seeing the same people just weeks apart and and just his frustration. You know, he's using Narcan to revive people. Um, But he wonders is, you know, are are we really making a difference? Are we just making things uh, even maybe even worse? He's just very frustrated, Um, you know, not just with the policy, but just with the situation. And the and the things that he's seeing on a daily basis, you know, he's saying these people a lot of times if it's an OD and they you know they refuse to go to the hospital, um, and again people are seeing the same 
and then reviving and saving the same people over and over. Most communities have taken this kind of different approach from just straight up jailing everyone to a more of a prevention and treatment model, which I agree with. Certainly, we tried it the other way for decades. Um, we tried it for many years in this crisis uh, to, to no avail. But much of this book focuses on this issue, uh, things like you know, Narcan being used to save lives on the street. And after we, we hear from Dan about kind of these changes in police practices and the situation on the street, um, we go on a report, a ride-along that was done with, with the Dayton EMT. Great question. So I would just say that we've had a number of, of members of law enforcement, both active and retired, write for the book about their experiences and, and kind of trying to counter some of the, the you know stigma that's out there that law enforcement is only about arresting you know people and, and right. not sympathetic to the use of naloxone or things like that. Um, we have somebody in um, Coleraine Township outside of Cincinnati who wrote a lot about um, the ways in which law enforcement are starting to act more like social workers. So they're trying to devise solutions to work directly with patients and families if they come out of the hospital after an overdose or going to their home and trying to connect them with resources rather than um, coming there to arrest them. And so you'll see, I think, a lot of sympathetic uh, members of law enforcement who are really rethinking their role and realizing that arresting is not really helping people um, enter recovery. Um, so I think that's a really positive thing. And it unfortunately is overshadowed by the real public attention that um, other people are getting when they talk about three strikes and things like that yeah. in terms of reviving people you know one of the things i'll just add to that and i think you know one of the appreciate one of the things that i've come to appreciate through this project is the um, diversity of counties in ohio we have 88 counties and they're just you know, county health departments are so different they're funded at different levels they have different cultures within them and you can be you know i mean literally counties that are adjacent to one another can have totally different models and of course sheriff's departments are run through counties and you get that kind of very American focus of if you have one sheriff, it can make a huge difference because yeah. they have so much authority, right? I mean, they're elected and all of that, but and maybe that's part of the problem. Some people say, right, when you look at uh, counties, um, but yeah, you it really depends on where you live and what your sheriff is doing. And one of the things I think I've grown to appreciate out of this is from the law enforcement side, really paying attention to sheriff's elections is something we could do down the road to think about this, really knowing what, what is your philosophy? About how often on a typical shift are you guys seeing overdoses? Every day we Every see day. overdoses, yes. How many times per shift? About two to three. As we spent the day with Dayton Fire Department Lieutenant Sarah Marshall, it didn't take long before the first overdose call came in. One suspected overdose in a house but when we arrive, not one, but three patients. Drug bag? The medics need more Narcan. He's calling for an extra drug bag, which means they have multiple patients, more Narcan, yes. Which is the antidote, right, to get them back. In each drug bag, six doses of Narcan. I got one fatal in the back of the medic right now. The man in the back of the ambulance didn't just overdose, he also had a heart attack. The likelihood of him coming back after we do CPR on him for an extensive amount of time is not good. So instead of bringing a dead body to the hospital, we usually field terminate, and then the coroner will come get him. So. Wait a minute. The man that's in the ambulance might, might yeah, die? Yeah, probably. It's not looking good. Two doses of Narcan revived the man in the van. The patient inside the house is also saved. For several minutes, the man in the ambulance is flatlined clinically dead, but the EMTs stay at it, continuing CPR, their efforts paying off. 
They have a pulse. Yeah. So they're going to the hospital. Okay. So, so the, the, the man who was in bad shape has a pulse? Yes. That's good news. Good. Yeah, that's great news. Great news indeed. Three lives saved in a matter of minutes. And yet, to Dayton's first responders, these scenes are now commonplace. There's no time to celebrate after saving three lives. It's just on to the next call. In the wake of this, this particular crisis, um, there's so much retraining happening. I mean, there should be retraining all the time. We train medical students at Ohio University, right? And we need to train medical students differently. And we are starting to train medical students differently as a result. Um, but the same is true with law enforcement. I mean, the, the kind of dynamic that Berkeley pointed to of sheriff's departments and law enforcement saying, you know, with social work, um, what, what, what is happening in some cases is you get teachers who are being told, look, you need to look for these warning signs. Are you, sure. They're not trained to do that, though. They need to be trained to do that. And I think that's so that you see police academies changing, you see medical schools changing. And they're also just kind of thinking differently about what it means to be a teacher, or what it means to be a, a physician or a nurse. We love this town. It's nice. There's like a peace of mind. It's fine. It just feels safe and secure being in denial. Living in denial works for me. All the families in denial, they feel the same as we do. Opioids? Not in denial. No. It doesn't happen here. No. My daughter is good friends. My boys would tell me anything. Exactly. No, our kids are way too busy. They would never abuse opioids. He gets amazing grades. Welcome to denial. <laughs> Don't live in denial, Ohio. Talk to your kids about opioids. Keeping these addictions and these deaths, you know, that used to be hidden in the shadows, you know, they're no longer hidden. So we start to, you know, talk about these, you know, these taboo issues of, of drug abuse here in Ohio. This is a big step, the fact that we're getting this out in the open. It's no longer, you know, hidden away in the shadows. Um, it's become a big news story all over the place, and everyone is talking about it. To your question about, you know, people's willingness to talk about this, um, it's true. I mean, Sam Quinones talks about how when he wrote his book, which was not that many years ago, it feels like it because it's been such a... Um, a dense couple of years talking about this but you know he says look not many people were willing to talk to me about this and when we put our call out for stories local stories and sam himself said like local stories are really an important next step um, when we put out our call we got a lot of interest in talking about it like clearly something had been gained in terms of just the willingness to talk about this in certain communities not everybody and there's still a long way to go but there's some stigma reduction that's taking place on the, the broader issue of being able to say, this has happened and this is us. And, you know, um, you probably see the denial Ohio ads and, you know, I mean, every every state agency is talking about this. So, you know, that's got to help a little bit. Uh, there's still, though, you know, this question of the criminal justice model versus a public health model. There's still a question of um, medication assisted treatment and, and you know, which all evidence says this is a really good way to go, but there's still hold, there are still holdouts who um, are not on board with it. Um, you know, there are still folks who think that um, you're just enabling people by using Narcan at, at the level that we would need to actually administer it to folks. And, you know, um, the sheriff, the deputy sheriff who writes in our book from Lucas County says, look, I'm, you know, if, if I have Narcan, I'm giving it to somebody if I can save them and we can talk about the next step next. Mm -hmm. But this idea that, you know, these people are irresponsible or whatever, like hopefully we're moving out of that model. None of the evidence suggests that that model works. 
And um, hopefully from this particular moment, we have a little bit more empathy about the fact that this could be anybody's kid or this could be anybody's friend. A couple of times while we were talking, Berkeley Francis, yeah, it is bad. It was bad. It's still bad. Uh, But her and the book and Dan, they want to focus also on the work that's being done to improve conditions and treatment and preventative programs uh, to vulnerable communities and and those suffering uh, across the state because that story is just as important and seriously more important to help pull us out of this. Uh, you know, Ohio versus opioids, like we said, we don't always win. Um, you know, we mentioned that an article that was done about the show in, in the Columbus Alive, you know, we said that it's Ohio versus the world and sometimes the world does win. But we are beginning to fight back and not far from me um, and Berkeley and Dan's tour here, the state and sharing by radio, um, by podcast, by internet, by just old-fashioned literature. Um, it's part of this more nuanced and effective response. And Berkeley wants to tell us, and, and we want to know, and we can study you know, some of these successes across the state of Ohio. Let me just say, I'm a sociologist by training, so I'm really interested in looking at some of the kind of social and economic factors that we know underlie, you know, drug use and and epidemics like this. And so I think the real broad structural changes that we need to see happen, of course, is that we need to have less economic inequality. We need to have more jobs, you know, things like that. And we need to improve um, social connections, civic engagement. I think we have, we're at the lowest level since the 1950s in terms of people just volunteering and getting to know their neighbors and things like that, which are all really protective of drug abuse for kids and adults. Um, So I think that's really important. And a lot of um, people in public health refer to bright spots. So these are areas and, you know, really um, regions that have been heavily affected that are doing really well. And so I think we need to study these areas more so and understand what they're doing well. In our book, we have a couple examples that I think are really great. We have one from Ross County of a drug prevention campaign or people from across the community who had no training and no, you know, background in this area have come together, met new people, and they've created a program that's really helping youth in that area. And I think that we need to just follow. Um, Ms. The, Chillicothe. Yes, yeah. Chillicothe, yeah, the um, um, program they have going on in their schools there. So I think we have a lot to learn from communities across the state, and I, that's what I'm really proud of in this book is that we've partnered with people that I think are doing incredible work, and I want people to get the word out there that, that recovery is possible, both for individuals and communities, and that we have really great examples of that. We touched on this a little earlier, but the whiteness of this crisis um, and really what it says about, you know, race and medicine, race and criminal justice. And maybe it is just a, a fact, you know, we're not, like Daniel said to me, where it's not just a just say no policy anymore. We tried that in the 1980s. It didn't work. Um, you know, the crack cocaine epidemic that we turned a blind eye to in America's inner cities. Things are different now, um, but it also makes you wonder why has it only changed now? We talk with our guests just about that issue of, of race and criminal justice uh, when we're talking about the opioid crisis. We also play you a clip from President Trump, uh, I guess this was last year, talking about the opioid crisis and his administration's planned response to it. From Ivanka Marie Hall, the Northeast Ohio Black Health Coalition. And when I first talked to Ivanka about the book project and whether she wanted to write something, she told me, she said, look, 
I've been doing harm reduction for years. Harm reduction meaning, you know, not taking a criminal justice model here, but just trying to help people to, you know, when 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 there's bad when there's a bad batch of cocaine in, in the Central Ohio right now, Columbus Public Public Health Columbus Public Health is doing good harm reduction. They're getting the word out saying like, look, we're not going to do this isn't don't this isn't just say no. Yeah. This is not like Nancy Reagan. This is be careful this weekend. We're letting you know that this is out there so you can make some choices around that. Um, she, as an African-American active in the community up in Cleveland, um, you know, had been doing this for years and nobody cared, right? And that's kind of the point of the piece in, in, in the book that she contributes, which is, oh, well, I'm really glad people care now, but it would have been nice if you cared about prior generations too. We're talking about drug courts instead of, uh, you know, getting people to treatment um, instead of you know, prisons and jails. Right. Um, great. What about all those people who are still sitting in Ohio's prisons and jails on um, other kinds of drug charges from the 70s, 80s, 80s and 90s? Mm-hmm. Right. So um, even as we're doing this kind of forward looking work that we hope our book does, there's still a question of, you know, are we going to do any kind of restorative work here? Are we going to go back and look at justice from a historical perspective? Yeah, and I would just add, I mean, you know, drug abuse for a long time and continues to be such a stigmatized issue, people are not comfortable talking about it. And you do see this approach now where people are really stepping up and becoming more creative and innovative and finding ways to break the stigma and, and talk openly about what we need to do to address this epidemic. And I do think this is a clear example of continuing racial bias. I mean, this, this kind of empathy and this kind of um, you know, really robust response just wasn't here during the crack cocaine epidemic or other epidemics that have affected non-white communities. Um, so I think this is just a great example and something we need to talk about really openly and honestly that this racial bias continues uh, to play a role in public health outcomes. Effective today, my administration is officially declaring the opioid crisis a national public health emergency under federal law and why I am directing all executive agencies to use every appropriate emergency authority to fight the opioid crisis. Postal Service and the Department of Homeland Security are strengthening the inspection of packages coming into our country to hold back the flood of cheap and deadly fentanyl, a synthetic opioid manufactured in China and 50 times stronger than heroin. And in two weeks, I will be in China with President Xi, and I will mention this as a top priority. (laughs) Illegal drug use is not a victimless crime. There is nothing admirable, positive, or socially desirable about it. There is nothing desirable about drugs. They're bad. And President Trump, even though it got a little odd there in the that clip there at the end, um, they have actually put some money where their mouth is. At least at least he's put some attention to this crisis during his three years in office. It's certainly not enough, and it certainly hasn't been effective. Um, but we asked Berkeley about you know her travels around the state and helping edit this book. Um, and one example, you know, of of a program that is working here in Ohio. There's so many people in the book that when I met, I was just incredibly humbled and, you know, really in awe of the work that they're doing. And it truly was a, um, such a privilege to get to know so many people from across the state. Um, but if I had to choose one, I would say there's an arts educator in Portsmouth, Ohio. Her name's Tracy Malloy, and she's working with um, teenagers, high school students at Portsmouth High School. So it's a, you know, a place that's been highly stigmatized for you know, the effects that opioids have had on the community. And she works with teenagers 
um, to create large-scale art exhibitions. So she had um, students in two classes a couple years ago write collaborative poems about their experiences growing up in Portsmouth and the expectations that people have for them because they're from there and they most of them have lost at least one parent, some both parents um, to drug use. And these students talk about people not having any expectations for them or any hope for them to be any different. And the students have different expectations from themselves and have had a lot of support from teachers there to really mm-hmm. um, continue to develop um, and, and really kind of uh, recover from some of the trauma they've experienced. And so I think this, this use of arts and humanities to you know work through some of these things is incredibly powerful. And it's getting people to talk differently about who these people are and the potential they really have that they shouldn't just be forgotten or thrown away because they're from families that have been affected or communities that have been affected. Um, but there's so much potential there. And I'm just really thankful that these educators believe in these students and it's really powerful. Recently, as, as recent as just a couple of weeks ago, um, you know, there's a settlement that's been tentatively agreed to between 20 states, including Ohio and Purdue Pharma. A lot of states are don't say it doesn't go far enough, doesn't punish the Sackler family, those who headed Purdue Pharma, who did some real shady stuff, uh, not just benefiting incredibly uh, financially, um, but also some some very deceptive dealings uh, at a corporate level. The Centers for Disease Control has estimated that as many as 400,000 people died in the U.S. since the late 90s from prescription and illegal opioids. Now, the first comprehensive settlement against a key manufacturer appears to have been reached. More than 20 states and more than 2,000 cities and counties have reportedly reached a deal with Purdue Pharma. That's the manufacturer of OxyContin. Now, the settlement would reportedly include a payout of up to $12 billion dollars to states, cities, and counties over a number of years. $3 billion from the Sackler family directly, which owns Purdue Pharma. The Sacklers would also give up control of Purdue Pharma. There would be a major change for the company as well. Purdue Pharma would declare bankruptcy. It would then be converted into a public trust focused on combating the opioid epidemic. In reading this book that Dan and Berkeley edited, Not Far From Me, you know, this one clip really stuck out. And not ju- not just because it was so well written, but it's from Central Ohio, and it, and it you know talks about this idea of Ohio versus opioids, the name for episode three here today. And I want to say, you know, just to those who are listening who are struggling with drug abuse, know someone struggling with opioids, um, you got to know that, that there's help out there. Counties all over the state have have bulked up their resources, even on the internet, uh, even those with little or no insurance, you can get help. An effective help. Um, you know, go to your local board of health if you're broke and you can't afford private treatment or whatever. It's something that you can overcome. You know, it's a clip from the book we had to re- have Dan read it, um, and we think it's a fitting close to this episode. When I think about my experience with opioids and Ohio's experience more generally, I think about those Ohio Against the World T-shirts I see around the state. While they've been appropriated as symbolic for the trials and tribulations of Cleveland sports teams, I see something deeper at work. To me, they represent an attempt, conscious or not, to veil the harsh reality of drug use in Ohio. Is it really true that we Ohioans are taking on everyone else? And what does the world know or care of about Ohio anyway? When we blur the link between a troubled society on the one hand and drug addiction on the other, we fail to uncover and understand that society's inner logic. Creating a fictional battlefront, us versus them, 
blurs the fact that I and so many others are in fact against the world of disappointment, tedium, and hopelessness that Ohio offers us. Such conditions are ripe for harvesting addiction. Sports fanaticism provides solace. Being white lets you hide. But ultimately, neither one counteracts the intense sadness on which addiction feeds. I wonder what it'll be like when it's Ohio against opioids and we start battling addiction for all people and not just those who look like me. From Garfield's tomb to the serpent mound From the big cities to the river towns First in flight making history There's so many books you need to see I like reading And I like reading Tippecanoe and Tyler too From the Queen City to Lake Erie Blue Edison and a man on the moon so many books, which will we choose? I like reading I like reading Our book for the episode, obviously, is not far from me. Just coming out in June of 2019, this summer. Our editors of the book, uh, authors, Berkeley... Friends and Daniel Skinner from Ohio University uh, put this together, these 53 different perspectives and stories and, and pieces about the opioid crisis from every angle um, and really is moving the discussion forward. We wanted to talk to them just about the process of putting this book together. Again, you can get it at notfarfromme.org, uh, which is, I think, the best way to get it. And there's other um, things that you can see and read there. Um, you can also... You know, listen to Daniel's show Prognosis Ohio. His podcast is out everywhere. And again, it's played uh, on WCBE 90.5 FM here in, in Columbus, one of their podcasts uh, on that NPR station. And, you know, we talked to them just about their partnership. How did they even get together to kind of co-edit this book? Berkeley and I have been working together on research projects for, gosh, now almost four years, various different kinds of academic research projects, a lot of which have to do with hospitals and communities um, and the politics and policy aspects of medicine. So this book came along, um, really, I mean, to be in Ohio in 20, well, then it was 2017, opioids and were everywhere in the policy domain, which is my specific area of engagement in Berkeley as a community-based researcher was obviously looking at it from that perspective. So. And as we've said before, this is a, a book that's trying to move the discussion forward. I know we focused a lot on, on the history of the opioid crisis because I think it's important. I think myself, I didn't know anything about it until I started doing the research. And I think it benefits our listeners, especially those in Ohio and those in, in Appalachia. Who, who are affected and those who know others um, that have been affected by it. How did, how did this happen? That's what we want to do with the show is use history to kind of you know push us forward and propel us forward. But this book is also a step forward in how we look at the crisis. We have to look at it from every angle. That includes law enforcement. That includes the addict on the street. That includes family members that are affected, the medical community. So many different perspectives here, community leaders, um, and we talked to them just about that, that holistic aspect of the book. 
Well, I think it's important for a couple of reasons. So as Dan mentioned, I'm a community-based researcher. I'm really interested in having communities talk for themselves and you know, actually asking patients or communities um, what their perspectives are because often they're not included right, in the dominant narratives that we have either in medicine or in politics. And so I think it's it's really vital that we listen to you know how people have been affected by opioid abuse and and really kind of listen closely to what they're saying rather than trying to you know imagine or you know guess what their experiences have been. But also it's important to broaden the conversation a little bit. I and mean, when we talk about opioid abuse, we tend to think of individuals, right? We tend to think of people who are addicted to drugs. And the reality is, is that a lot more people are kind of wrapped up in this. Um, epidemic or whatever you want to call it. You know, you have families and caregivers and recovering addicts and communities and healthcare professionals and a whole other host of community kind of leaders and professionals that are part of this. And I, we wanted our book to capture those voices as well. And lastly, we talked to them, uh, Berkeley and Dan, just about the name of the book. Where did they come up with the name Not Far From Me? What does that mean? Um, and why was it meaningful for them? Why did that pop out? You know, it's from a an excerpt in the book. We asked we asked Dan about it. We put the book together and then we sat down and said, um, well, what should we call it? And we came to this one moment in a poem by Gerald Green, uh, the Dayton-based poet who's also a you know, community activist and a really engaged person. And not far from me jumped out at us because one of the themes that runs through the book is just this assumption that I, if we can get anything, I hope we can get rid of, which is this idea that it's about other people, you know, that we, we do this kind of scapegoating and, you know, we think that people are coming into our community when it's actually our community that we need to address. So this idea that, you know, we need to stop looking in distances and start taking care of where we are. That'll do it for today's episode. Again, thank you so much to Berkeley Franz and Daniel Skinner uh, and their book about the opioid crisis, Not Far From Me. Go buy that. Uh, we've got a link in the show notes to help you get there. Um, and, and we thank them so much. Don't forget to rate and review the show, please, on iTunes. Just scroll down right now on your phone. It takes two seconds. Whether you just give us a five-star review or you write an actual review, uh, it helps bump us up and helps more people find the show. Uh, and again, we're so blown away by how many people have listened to our Watergate episode with John Dean or our John Glenn episode uh, that was released uh, two weeks ago, uh, episode two. Uh, again, love that everyone's listening and sharing the show, and, and that's just been a great uh, start to season four. Uh, follow us on Twitter at Ohio V the World. Our Twitter following is still really small, so uh, help us build that up. And of course, on Instagram, if you want an Ohio V the World T-shirt, uh, email us at at Ohio V the World at Gmail dot com, um, and we can help get those out. Free shipping. And they're really cool t-shirts. You can look at our Instagram at Ohio View the World podcast to see what those look like. Um, and again, very cool stuff. So we appreciate you guys for joining us. Next episode will be really a true Ohio versus the world episode. We'll be talking about Jerry Mock, the flying housewife from Columbus, Ohio, who becomes the first woman to solo fly around the world. It's in 1964, this unknown, little known story. Jerry from Newark, Ohio, uh, then living in, in Bexley, when in her late 30s, uh, decides to fly around the world uh, by herself in an incredibly dangerous uh, journey that we'll share with you step by step, uh, and, and just a really cool story about Jerry Mock, the flying housewife. Uh, thanks again for joining us, guys. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. 
please share the, the show with your friends at, and we'll keep making a difference and keep moving up those charts. Thanks a lot and have a great day. of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar Series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. They are able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast.